The text for this morning's sermon is Genesis chapter 2, the verses 9b and 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll just begin reading at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And now our text. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now to verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. After the sermon, we will respond by singing Psalm 63, stanza 2. We left off preaching in Genesis last time at the end of chapter 2, where we saw how the Lord instituted marriage. Out of Adam's rib, the Lord made a special and unique helper suitable for him. But before we can go on to chapter 3, we have to briefly go back and take care of some unfinished business on our part. We have to examine a couple of trees. The events of chapter 3 center around the forbidden fruit of one particular tree, And that tree is first introduced to us in chapter 2 in our text. So significant is this tree that when Adam and Eve eat from it, their whole life changes, their whole world changes, and even the whole human race of the future is profoundly affected. Paradise is ruined and the world is perverted when the fruit of that tree is eaten. What sort of tree is this? What are we to make of this tree and its apparent power? And what about that other tree, the tree of life? It's kind of the silent partner to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is its role in the Garden of Eden? I proclaim to you this word of God. The Lord gives two trees to deepen man's faith in him. The trees reveal the essence of evil and the essence of life. The Lord God gives two trees to deepen man's faith in him. The trees reveal the essence of evil. The first thing we should notice is that we are indeed dealing here with two special trees, not just one. A lot of people have the misconception that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life are one and the same tree. But our text says very clearly in verse 9, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. Two trees with two different names and serving two different functions. The one has to do with knowledge and the other has to do with life itself. I think the confusion has arisen in part because after verse 9 of our text, the Bible never mentions these two trees in the same verse. In fact, after verse 9, we don't read a word about the tree of life until the end of chapter 3. And that may give the false impression to some that there is one tree with two names but really there are two trees. And it's important to see that because the meaning and significance of these two trees is tied to one another, 
They work in tandem. Because of what happens in chapter 3, many people concentrate their attention on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They try to figure out precisely what it is about this tree that led to the disastrous results of man being evicted from Eden. Some wonder whether this tree had poisonous fruit or whether it had power to pervert man's thinking and man's nature. But what many don't see is the relationship between the two trees themselves. Look again at verse 9. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were both there, side by side. The Lord didn't plant one tree on one side of the garden and the other on the opposite side. He didn't try to hide them from each other. He didn't disassociate them with each other, but he put them in the closest possible relationship, together, in the middle of the garden. The tree of life stood a few feet away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That means, brothers and sisters, that when Eve later stands by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, speaking with the serpent, then the tree of life looms silent but large in the background, right behind her. And both trees stood in the middle of the garden, we read. That shows something of their importance. They had a special place in the garden. They occupied center stage, and that made them the focal point in man's new home. And you know that when something is placed at the center of your home, your attention is immediately drawn there, and it won't be long before you come close to investigate. The two trees were the centerpiece of Eden's garden. So what are we to make of these two trees? There are some who think that they possessed a sort of magical power, that when you ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for example, you would instantly become wise. In fact, that is what Satan says of the fruit in chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And along the same line, some believe the tree of life had an independent power to give man immortality. Just eat of the fruit and you will live forever. It's the kind of idea you see in so many legends, myths, and fantasy stories. Think of the fountain of youth whose water would keep a person eternally young. But there's never any magic in God's handiwork. It may be miraculous, but it's never magical. You see, magic is always understood as a power independent of God, outside of God, in fact as a distinct God in itself. But is there really anything outside of God's sovereign power? Sometimes we see Satan this way. We see Satan and his demons as a rival of God, more or less on equal footing. We see him as the archenemy of God, who works day and night to overthrow God's kingdom. And while that is true of Satan and his forces of evil, even they don't exist, not even for an instant, independent of God's power and will. Satan likes to think he does, and he would have us believe that he's another God who can take the place of the Creator, But the truth is that all power belongs to the Lord God. We confess this in the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And isn't that a balm for our woes, brothers and sisters? How many of us haven't had great adversity? Even evil things take place in our lives. Some that are downright wicked. Some of us have experienced injury or crippling disease. 
Others, the care of children or relatives that is physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting. Some, the sudden and tragic loss of a loved one in the prime of life. Others, deep-seated betrayal of trust and love at the hands of one we loved. Where would we find hope if all these things didn't ha- if all these things happen by some power outside of God's control? If black magic or satanic power is a second god that is free to do as it pleases no matter what God says, then these hardships have no purpose and our life is futile. It's only when we understand that the Lord allows such things, even sends such adversity with the purpose of blessing us and glorifying himself, it's only then that it makes any sense. It's only then that it gives us comfort for today and bright hope for tomorrow because the adversity cannot, will not last forever. Nor will it be for our detriment at the end. The God who controls everything will also work these things out for our good. These trees are not independent of God. In fact, they're not even from an evil source under God's power. For look at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. These trees and their fruit are not self-existing trees. God put them there. They're not even supernatural trees. Like all the other trees, they grew out of the ground. Their fruit was good and pleasing to the eye, like all the others. Of themselves, they were perfectly ordinary trees in the Garden of Eden. But what makes them different is that God gives them a specific location with special purposes and unique names. Their purposes are revealed in part in their names. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. These trees would impart in some way both knowledge and life. Now many people assume that Adam and Eve could gain the knowledge of good and evil by eating from its fruit. Others go further and explain that God didn't actually want them to have that knowledge. God, they say, didn't want man to be like him, so he put a limitation around that one tree and commanded them not to eat of it. It's a picture of a God trying to protect his high position and sovereignty, but is that the God of the scriptures? Is God ever afraid that man can be like him, equal to him in knowledge and power? And besides, when Adam and Eve did eat of that tree, did they suddenly enter the same exalted state of knowledge and understanding as the Lord God? It's just the opposite. For from that moment they ate from that tree, they had a twisted sense of right and wrong, a perverted sense of good and evil, and they were nothing like God. Rather, brothers and sisters, a better explanation is to see that God fully intended to impart knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve, not by eating of its fruit, but precisely by not eating of its fruit. That sentence is worth repeating. God fully intended to impart knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve, not by eating of its fruit, but precisely by not eating of its fruit. God's commandment in verse 16 is crystal clear. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That fruit didn't contain the inherent power to make one wise, but obeying the Lord's commandment would make man wise. That's how true knowledge of good and evil would be given to Adam and Eve. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not eating from a certain tree. For if you think of Adam and Eve's situation in paradise, they knew of no evil. They were created in the image of God, and so the inclination of their hearts was always filled with love for God and love for each other. Not a bad thought even crossed their minds. They knew their creator in perfect bliss, without any taint of sin, because evil had never entered into their world, their environment, not even their heart or mind. You could say that they loved and obeyed God's will naturally and wholeheartedly, without realizing or knowing that you even could disobey God. Much like we don't give any thought to breathing in order to stay alive, so Adam and Eve gave little conscious thought to obeying God's will and living in fellowship with the Lord. It just came naturally. And the Lord's intention with these two trees is to deepen that love by forcing a choice between good and evil. The Lord wants man to develop a greater love and devotion to him that goes beyond natural inclination to deliberate and willful choice in the face of an alternative, namely evil. When Adam and Eve are confronted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has fruit just as pleasant to behold as any other tree, just as pleasant to eat, then unlike any of the other trees, they are confronted with a choice. Take the fruit which is ripe and tasty, or obey God and leave the tree alone. This tree was the only tree that made Adam and Eve aware of the possibility of doing wrong, the option to disobey. And for that reason, God calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He wasn't hiding knowledge from them by forbidding the fruit, but he was holding knowledge out to them. He was offering wisdom out to them by making this tree the line in the sand they must not cross. God would teach them the full meaning of obedience by distinguishing it from disobedience, something they had nowhere else in the garden. The Lord wants a heart that rejects every alternative and gives itself fully to him. And in this tree, beloved, we see clearly revealed the essence of evil. I think we often define evil by the negative effects it brings or the consequences it will have. Murder is evil because it harms our neighbor and brings strife between people. Stealing is evil because it robs someone of his possessions and leaves him poor. Rape is evil because it demeans and defiles a person. As long as we can identify the negative outcome, we don't have a problem seeing it as evil. But when the outcome is uncertain, then we're not so sure. When a person withdraws his membership from the church for no valid reason, is that evil? When a person comes to the worship services sporadically, or hardly at all, is that sinful? When a person doesn't give of his first fruits to maintain the ministry of the gospel and to assist the poor and needy, is that evil? Things become a little gray for us, and we're not so sure whether we can call these things sins. But brothers and sisters, in our cloudy thinking, we've lost sight of what evil and sin really are. For look at this tree in this command. There's nothing about this tree of itself that would harm man. Verse 9 says it already, and Eve echoes it later in chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, its fruit is not poisonous. It's not filled with thorns. 
Adam will not become sick or diseased from the fruit of this tree. In fact, the fruit will fill his stomach and satisfy his body. The Lord doesn't command man to stay away from this fruit tree because there's evil in the tree, but because there's evil in rejecting God's instructions. The Lord wants man to trust God's judgment and simply obey just because God said so. God's point is that even though there's nothing wrong with the tree, God's will must prevail over bodily desire or demonic temptation. Something is sinful, brothers and sisters, not because it brings harm or ill effect, but because it goes contrary to the will of God, the word of God, the command of God. And that is radical compared with how we often judge things ourselves. We downplay sin and evil when we can't see the harm, but we forget how we offend God's majesty and slap God's face every time we disobey his command. When, the, when God in the Bible commands us to be one in faith and unite in the body of Christ, what is it but evil when someone withdraws from that body without just cause? When God commands us to worship him within the communion of the saints and not neglect the gathering of the church, what is it but sin when we don't come diligently and faithfully? When the Lord commands us to give of our first fruits, what is it but evil for us to break his command and hold back our gifts from him? Let's not fool ourselves. Let's not reduce sin and evil in these and similar cases to some murky gray zone where we really don't know what to call it. Going contrary to God's will, breaking God's commandment, is sin and evil, period. And the punishment that is attached to sin is death. Make no mistake about it. We're dealing here with a very serious matter, for if we pluck the forbidden fruit also today, if we indulge in sin without repentance, then we cut ourselves off from the tree of life. For we need to understand both trees in relationship to each other. The tree of life stands in contrast to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating of the first tree was the way of eternal life, but eating of the second tree was the way of eternal death. When the commandment concerning the tree of knowledge was broken, then it became the tree of death, the very opposite of its counterpart that grew beside it. The contrast is implied in our text, verse 16. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree, including the tree of life. The only tree prohibited was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam and Eve were permitted to freely take from the tree of life. The two trees showed the two paths man could take. Either they could wholeheartedly obey God and pass over the fruit of the tree of knowledge to pluck the fruit of the tree of life, or they would break God's command and choose their own pathway to life. And we know which path they took. God places before man a test, just as he would do on different occasions throughout history. He later tested Abraham by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Sometime later, the Lord tested Israel in the desert, as we sang from Psalm 81, verse 6. And you also saw how at Meribah, I was there to test you. And what did God hope to gain by testing Adam or Abraham or Israel? His object was to show them that the way of life was the way of loving him 
with all their heart, soul, and mind. Abraham was asked the question, Do you love your son more than me? Will you obey my command or go with your gut? And Israel, in the harsh climate of the desert, was asked, Do you trust me to provide for your needs? Will you wait patiently until God provides water? Or will you run back into Egypt or turn to other gods for help? We sang their response in Psalm 81, verse 10. By their willful choice, they my love rejected. They ignored my voice. Israel did not heed what they were taught. They my law neglected. The Lord wanted them to love him with all their heart, to flee from all other so-called options, to give themselves wholeheartedly to their God and trust his promises, even when there seemed no earthly reason to do so. Faith becomes deeper when God is trusted and believed, even contrary to human rationale and logic. The tree of life, beloved, shows us the essence of life. For why would Adam and Eve take from it rather than the tree of knowledge which stood beside it? Each tree had fruit equally pleasing to the eye, equally good for food. Adam and Eve already had life, and they could eat from any tree in the garden, So why should this tree have been of any interest to them? It's not as if they would die if they didn't eat from the tree of life. So what would compel them to take its fruit? The forbidden tree was much more compelling because that had to do with knowledge of something they knew nothing about yet by experience. Good and evil together. From a human point of view, that tree had something to offer them which they couldn't find anywhere else. So the only reason they would take the fruit of the tree of life was because it was set in opposition to the tree of knowledge. The only attraction would be the consideration that God had forbidden the one tree and attached death to it, while the other tree he had called life. Adam and Eve would only desire the fruit of that tree when they had consciously rejected the fruit of the other tree in obedience to God's command. In other words, brothers and sisters, Nothing would have propelled them to eat of the tree of life except for a pure-hearted love for God that yielded to his commandments despite an attractive alternative. The essence of life is to love is love for God, a yearning for the Lord and his fellowship. Do you understand that? The essence of death is hatred for God and separation from him. But the essence of life is a hunger for God's presence and a thirst for communion with him. Is that hunger and thirst in your heart? It's not enough to know God exists. We've heard lots of people say, oh, I believe in God, but then ignore his commandments completely. That's not faith, and that doesn't lead to eternal life. What do you think, brothers and sisters? Do you think it is enough to grow up in a Christian family and go to a Christian church and have the basic form of a Christian life? To say you believe in God? Do you think that's the way to everlasting life? If that's all there is, then it's nothing but a hollow shell of religion which will prove empty and meaningless on the last day. Don't let that happen to you. Life, real living, is to love your God, to want nothing so much as to know him, commune with him, and have fellowship with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's living. That's pure joy. 
It's even so as we will sing from Psalm 63. Your steadfast love is better far than life itself, O God, my Savior. The choice to eat from the tree of life is one born out of the deepest attachment, the highest commitment to the Lord, to love him enough to obey a command which may not seem to make sense on the surface, but just because it was God's command. Two trees once stood in the middle of God's garden paradise on the earth. And in the end, two trees will once again stand in the middle of God's city paradise. Did you notice that in our reading of Revelation 22? In that dazzling description of the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of both God and man, we read, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Two trees again, but this time not two opposing trees, but two of the same, two trees of life. The time of testing is past, and the time of eternal life has come for all who have access to those trees. And access comes through faith in the Lamb of God. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The right to the tree of life. You know, we forfeited that right in the first Adam when we broke God's command and violated his covenant with us. Sinners aren't welcome in eternal life. Those with dirty robes may not take from the tree of life, but we can now wash our robes. And where do we wash our robes? We go to the second Adam, who made the right choice where we failed. We run to the last Adam, who followed God's commandment, even when it brought him shame, brought him pain, even death. We trust in the Son, who loved his Father with such a perfect and deep love that will never truly fathom it, and yet who is made to hang on the tree of death. We wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb, for only he will make them white as snow. Do you choose for life? Do you want eternal life? Then love the Father with all your heart, and follow the Son with all your might, and be transformed by the Spirit with all your being. God gave everything he had for you, and he gives it still. Won't you give everything you have for him? Amen.